Our communion meditation is from Jonah. So if you could open to Jonah 3. I will read the whole chapter, but the uh, message is from verses 4 through 10. Let's hear God's word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent, and Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask you to open our minds to understand it. We pray that you would apply it to us in this day. We thank you, Father, that your word is timeless. It is not uh, in isolation intended for a people that lived long ago, but Father, it speaks to us today and you speak to us today. We thank you. We thank you for this wisdom. We thank you for your presence with us now and always in Christ's name. Amen. We are in the middle of a series on Jonah for the communion meditation, and uh, it's, it's been a long time, actually. Uh, most of the message, messages were given back in June and July, so I'll recap quite quickly. Most of us are very familiar with Jonah, but uh, I'll just remind us of what it is. Uh, first, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, commanded him to go to Nineveh, and yet he disobeyed. Uh, where Jonah was, Nineveh was probably about 500 miles to the northeast of there, and Jonah instead flew, uh, fled due west, uh, probably at least 1,000 to 2,000 miles away to a port city of Tarshish. He uh, fully intended to escape this responsibility that God had levied on him. But God went after Jonah for his own good because he loved him. And yet the sailors on the boat when God brought this storm, uh, the sailors demonstrated more fear of God and more respect for life than did Jonah, a man of God. They reluctantly sacrifice him only after it appears that's the only thing that they can do, and then they are amazed when as soon as Jonah's body hit the water, that fish swallows him and the storm just immediately dissipates. So this led them to, again, praise God, to thank God for his uh, having preserved them. God also, at that time, preserved Jonah. And I use that word preserved in that way. He's stuck in a fish for three days, and so it probably wasn't a pleasant place to be. Jonah was not saved yet. 
he was preserved. Yet, when he humbled himself and prayed to the Lord, then God saved him. And so then he spoke to the fish, and the fish uh, spit him up on the dry land. Jonah is then given a second chance, and this is where the book of Jonah really begins again. In Jonah 3, you see everything being repeated. And yet, last time I pointed out some nuances of difference. For instance, in the beginning, in Jonah 1, God said, go cry out against that city. But in 3, he tells Jonah, go to them, but I will tell you what to say. There has been a loss of trust on God's part in Jonah, and Jonah would have to re-earn that trust. So that brings us up to where we are. So now he has arisen, he's entered into Nineveh, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days journey in extent, and Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. He cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. When I introduced this a long time ago, we talked about how unusual the book of Jonah is. Although it is included in the minor prophets, it has very little prophecy in it. It, it is almost a opposite in every other respect about the prophetical books. Yet there are these eight words of prophecy, and they're not fulfilled. And actually in today's text, we see that they're not fulfilled. The phrase is, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I believe Jonah's message spread very fast, faster than he could walk across the city. It says, Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk, and then he cried out. And then when we hit verse 5, it says, So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh. I believe as soon as Jonah's word hit these people, people started repenting. God's Holy Spirit just moved across this city extremely quickly. It even outpaced the king being able to publicly declare this. And so when he is confronted with the word, he also humbles himself. He doesn't oppose what his people are doing. He does it too. It's as if he admits that he also is a servant of God. He's not this supreme ruler who can just command everybody in his domain. He himself is under authority. So repentance and revival takes hold here. It affects the king. Can you imagine what it is like for a city of this size? Now, later we learn in God reproving Jonah that this is a city in which 120,000 people cannot tell their right hand from their left. Now, does that mean that they're all idiots? Or does that mean that there are just a small portion of them that are so young that they can't tell right from left? I don't know. But even 120,000 is a huge population for this time. So this is a big city. You could really probably contrast it with Omaha. It's probably slightly bigger than Omaha, more spread out, people everywhere. So he proclaims a total fast. He dons sackcloth, the king, takes off all of those comfy uh, robes and royal gowns that he has, and he clothes himself in sackcloth to intentionally uh, burden his skin with the irritation that he would then want to scratch it. And... He gets off of his comfy pillows, and he gets down in ashes, and he gets dirty. This is the king himself, and he commands that everybody across this whole city do this, and they do it. Total fast, no food, not one morsel of food, not a drop of water. 
Now that's an extreme fast. And not just for mankind, for animals as well. Just really unheard of to go to the extent of not allowing your animals to eat. And the next phrase where in verse 8 he says, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The king is acknowledging that there are those in their midst in this city that are violent, probably are not even living in subjection to the rules and the laws of Nineveh itself. They're so violent that they're more violent than this violent Assyrian nation. Yet, he even commands them, the, the lawbreaker in his midst, to humble themselves and submit to this because he wants everybody to bow the knee before the Lord in that they may then be spared. They do this, why? In verse 9, who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Who can tell? Now, what was the message again? The message was, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There was no exception stated in that. There was no if, unless, it just said, you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. Yet, this king and all of these people bow the knee in the hopes that God will have mercy. And of course, we read on and see that God does have mercy. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, the question I have for you, and this actually puzzles a lot of people, does God's relenting of his intentions upon the city of Nineveh, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is Jonah speaking. This is a prophet of God. Yet it doesn't happen. It doesn't come to pass. And so is this is an example of unfulfilled prophecy. Is it God going back on his word? I want to read to you a little portion of Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And so any prophesied destruction of a city, of a nation, of a people in all of Scripture is always predicated on the possibility that God may have mercy. He doesn't always have mercy. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he doesn't always have mercy, but here he did. David, with the first baby uh, that he had fathered with Bathsheba, you remember the baby was sick and dying, and he prostrated himself. He would eat or drink nothing until such a time as then the baby died, and then his servants were afraid to tell him. But he said, I did not know whether God would have mercy. And yet, he'd been told by Nathan, that child will surely die. As a reproof to David, but also as a, a, uh, a symbol for all of the countryside that might have learned of this, this, this adultery that David had committed, and God wanted it judged. God wanted David's sin publicly judged. Yet, he still held out hope. He knew God was a merciful God. And he thought, maybe, maybe, just maybe, God will relent. So see, God reserves the right to judge 
and God reserves the right to withhold judgment. And we ourselves, I don't think, are as merciful as God. And I think we'll see that as we go forward in Jonah. But see, Jesus regarded the repentance of the Ninevites as real. We might be tempted to believe that it was all made up, that these people were just kind of caught up in some religious fervor. But Jesus, in Matthew 12, 41, spoke of the people of Nineveh rising up in judgment against the Jews of his day, the Jews that he himself was speaking to, the Pharisees and the scribes, those that felt they had a hold on God. Who better than the Jews would feel that they had a hold on God, on his mercy, on his love? And yet here, God extends it to this city in Assyria that is extremely evil. And I went through that a while back. I mean, they were a violent and brutal people. You did not want to fall victim to them in a war. Yet, God extended mercy to that whole city. And and obviously, many of them came to him because Jesus speaks of them as rising up in the judgment. In other words, they will stand for God as witnesses against the unbelieving Jews of Jesus' day. So God is merciful. What's interesting is this Jeremiah 18 phrase that I referenced where he speaks about the, uh, bringing destruction upon a city or a country, promising it, and yet then withholding it by mercy. That is the same chapter in which he speaks of the potter having the right to do what he wants with the clay at his disposal that's then referenced in Romans 9 by Paul. So see, God gives or withholds mercy for his own reasons. No one, no one deserves it, and that's us included. God extends mercy to whomever he wishes. He withholds it from whomever he wishes. And yet this table, we are told, represents the mercy and the grace of God. And he encourages us to participate in partaking of this grace. He promises us that his grace is present in the elements here. This is not a, 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 an, just a symbolic action that we do when we partake of the bread and the wine. We partake of grace, grace from the Lord that he extends to us. He hands his mercy and his grace to us, and we partake of it freely. And so let's remember that all of this is God being merciful to a people who do not deserve mercy, and we don't. So let's pray. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that we have no hold on you. Uh, just as the Assyrians didn't, just as David didn't in his throne room. And so, Lord, all that you bless us with and benefit us by, uh, we thank you for it. You have promised, Lord, to be good to us. You have made so many promises to us. And we uh, take, take, uh, take our lives into your hands. We bow before you and acknowledge that you own us and that you rule over us. So we submit ourselves to you, Lord, and we do plead for your mercy, your continued mercy. You poured it out at the cross. You continue to pour it out by the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We may not always avail ourselves of it as we should, but Lord, we thank you for this gift, and we ask you to apply it to us, to draw us close to yourself. We thank you, Father, for this and all things in Christ's name. Amen.